Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. I now turn it over to Tom Jipping, Senior Legal Fellow in Heritage's Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We hope you enjoy the program. Thanks. I'm I'm joined today by Ed Whalen, who is the who holds the the Antonin Scalia Chair in Constitutional Studies uh, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He also served in the judicial and the the legislative branch, and as a commentator and scholar, has followed judicial appointments and the Supreme Court for a long time. Welcome, Ed. Thank you, Tom. You know, a lot of people today maybe hearing the phrase court packing for the first time, um, but it's been around for a long time and there wasn't any confusion, at least in the beginning, back in 1936-37 when the debate over President Franklin Roosevelt's court packing plan was underway as to what it is. But uh, we need, since the idea is back, we need to clarify what it is and what it isn't. Um, how would you define court packing? Well, I would say court packing is adding seats to a court in order to alter the ideological uh, composition of the court. It's designed to uh, attack judicial independence by saying, look, we have a court that seems to be composed a certain way. We want different results. We're gonna add seats, not for any uh, reason involving casework or anything, but because we want to alter the um, ideological uh, composition of the court. That of course is what um, FDR did, tried to do, Back in 1937, even as he pretended he was doing something else, everyone recognized what was going on. And uh, back, you know, this became the, the classic textbook case of an, an illegitimate um, attack on the rule of law and on a proper and an attack on a proper understanding of judicial independence. And you know, the the Congress rejected FDR's plan. The Senate voted 70 to 20 to reject it and in a, in a Senate that was overwhelmingly democratic. Uh, and they did so not because uh, necessarily Roosevelt simply wanted to add members to the court, but the reason he wanted to add them was what really triggered the opposition, wasn't it? Exactly. Uh, you know, Roosevelt pretended that he was concerned about those poor aging justices who wouldn't be able to hand their, handle their workload so the, the guise was that you'd uh, anytime a justice would reach the age of 70, you'd add another seat to, to, to help, to help that, that justice carry out the workload, which of course doesn't, doesn't reflect a, an understanding of how the court actually works. But uh, everyone, including his um, political allies, knew that what he really wanted to do was create a court that would rubber stamp uh, his New Deal projects. Uh, and. and that was what this was all about, um, not his, uh, not the reasons he presented publicly. And of course, he had run for re-election in 1936 without saying a word about this. He had not tried to uh, um, obtain any um, democratic legitimacy or ratification for this concept. Uh, and uh, as, as you indicated, uh, a, a Senate that was overwhelmingly democratic uh, repudiated his enterprise. And this has since been understood as, as just off the table um, uh, when, when it comes to uh, dealing with the Supreme Court. 
So, so court packing is is adding positions to the Supreme Court or another court for the purpose of changing its decisions, not for the purpose of equipping that court to better handle its caseload. Because sometimes Congress does that for the lower courts uh, and, and ha hasn't done that in a while, but sometimes they will do that. In interesting historical note, the Congress back then knew the difference between, because as we've said, the Senate rejected court packing, but then over the next four years, Franklin Roosevelt replaced eight justices on the Supreme Court, and the Senate confirmed them uh, with, with a total of 20 negative votes among all eight of them. In fact, six of them didn't even have a roll call vote. So the Senate knew the difference between filling vacancies as they happen versus adding positions to change the direction of the court. Um, today, advocates for court packing, um, they'll, they'll make the observation that Congress does have the authority to change the number of judges on a particular court. They just make that observation as if, therefore, uh, Congress can and should do that now. There isn't any question about that. Congress does have the authority, doesn't it? I, I think that's correct. Um, again, there are things that can be uh, formally permissible and still be uh, deeply contrary uh, to um, core separations of powers values. And the lesson from 1937 is that court packing contravenes those those important values. In, in January, um, former Attorney General Eric Holder, um, he'd done it before, but he, he renewed his support for court packing. And he then, and also when uh, Senator Ed Markey and Congressman uh, Jerry Nadler introduced legislation to add four seats to the Supreme Court, they, they said that one of the reasons the court needed to be expanded was that the number of justices on the Supreme Court should equal the number of circuits on the U.S. Court of Appeals. It had been that way in the 19th century. It ought to be that way again. How would you respond to that? Well, back in the 19th century, when indeed uh, seats were occasionally added um, because of the circuit riding responsibility, the justices rode circuit. That is, that is, it was their responsibility to go out and travel uh, and and try cases and decide them out in Wisconsin or Missouri, and that was time-consuming work. Well, that circuit writing responsibility was uh, Congress abandoned that uh, in in the in the 19th century, and instead instituted the system of appellate courts that we have today. And the idea that uh, because we have a federal circuit, say uh, that sits in D.C. and that handles intellectual property cases, that we somehow need a justice to ride circuit for the federal circuit or the D.C. circuit, I mean, this this is ludicrous. This is uh, uh, you know as um, you know, patently dishonest as as FDR's um, claim that he was really trying to help those old justices. Uh, yeah, when, when, when members of, when members of Congress here or their staff here or we read about that kind of an argument, it it's it is a little bit uh, discouraging that the, you know here you have a former Attorney General, you have the current Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, talking about our our judicial system as if it was the 19th century. I mean, there hasn't been any conne necessary connection between the number of justices and the number of circuits uh, for more than 100 years. But more dispiriting, I think, is the effort to snooker the American public. You know, uh, Eric Holder and Gerald Nadler know that uh, what they're giving as their supposed reasons are not their motivations. 
they, they, they know that court packing is deeply unpopular. They know that Joe Biden did not run on court packing and did tried to distance himself from it in the 2020 election and, and almost surely would have lost if he embraced it. They know that uh, the, the uh, Senate would be very unlikely to be in Democratic hands uh, if senators had um, openly embraced court packing. So this is a, uh, you know, a, a shell game that ought to um, be, ought to be condemned. Uh, you know, let's, let's, if they want to make the argument straight up for court packing, go ahead and do it, but don't, don't, don't pretend you're doing something else. Let's talk about, uh, I mean, some advocates for court packing um, are very straightforward uh, as to uh, why they want to expand the courts. Left-wing groups um, are advocating it quite strongly. Um, if you look at the, the material that they put out on their website and the arguments that they make, they say a couple of things. First, um, uh, they say there's a 6-3 supermajority on the Supreme Court, six uh, Republican appointees, three Democratic appointees, and that that somehow by itself means that some balancing needs to be done, and that's why we ought to add justices. Um, what would you say to that? Well, this balance argument that the left makes um, always seems to cut in one direction. I know that when uh, uh, President Clinton nominated Ruth Bader Ginsburg to replace um, Byron White, uh, you didn't hear complaints that this would be altering the ideological balance of the Supreme Court. Look, we are where we are uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, including uh, important um, victories in the political arena. The um, the victory by Donald Trump in uh, 2016 uh, over Hillary Clinton, a victory that obviously uh, surprised and um, grew into despair uh, many on the left. The fight um, over the Scalia vacancy that was a central part um, uh, of that presidential campaign and this, this, this seat that, that uh, President Trump was unable to fill along of course with the um, seats vacated by uh, Anthony Kennedy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So where we are, we are where we are through the ordinary operation of the political processes. And the, the, the idea that this requires some sort of uh, exceptional response, I think is fed more by, uh, by grievance, uh, by an, an ill-founded sense of grievance than by any proper understanding of American politics. I'm, I'm looking here at a column or an op-ed that was in the New York Times in 2019. It says, if you're mad about Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, pack the court. And then a, a year later, I've got here an article from The Atlantic that said, uh, if, if you're mad about the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, pack the court. Um, I mean, that, that, that doesn't even seem to be a sensible response. I mean, if, you're, if your response is supposed to have some relationship with the problem, uh, changing the, the structure of the court itself going forward is hardly a response to the appointment of a particular justice that you don't like. Right. Now, the left uh, is happy to destroy the Supreme Court uh, in the process of trying to, to steal it. Uh, I think that's a, a deeply uh, dangerous effort. We can look at the particulars of, 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 of these things that they complain about. Let's take um, the um, Scalia vacancy that Mitch McConnell held open during 2016. Mitch McConnell was following the playbook that Joe Biden prescribed way back in 1992 uh, about what, what Biden would do in the, in the, if a vacancy developed in the last year of George H.W. Bush's administration. The same playbook that Harry Reid and Chuck Schumer 
um, set forth in 2007 and 2008 regarding a vacancy that would arise in the last year of, of George W. Bush's administration. The, the very thing that uh, Barack Obama's former White House counsel, uh, Catherine Rumler, candidly acknowledged she would have recommended if the political polarities were reversed. This was something that had been long baked into the process. Obviously, uh, inaction on, uh, on, uh, on nominees has been a Senate prerogative as, as far back as you can go. There's nothing uh, at all uh, exceptional about this. Republicans made a big bet. They won. And indeed, uh, let's have in mind that, that during 2016, the left ran away from Merrick Garland. His name was not mentioned one time at the Democratic convention. They were pushing Hillary Clinton uh, upon her, you know, all but certain victory to, to nominate someone else. So the idea that they're then hiding behind him as a martyr is just a, a you know, a revisionist account of history that, that we should not allow to stand. Well, another, come, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so then we come, uh, you know, forward to, to last year. It was a Democrat's abolition of the filibuster that paved the way for Amy Coney Barrett to be uh, confirmed at the very end of President Trump's uh, presidency. Uh, you know, they, they did this back in 2013 with respect to lower court nominees, Democrats did. And then Weeks before the 2016 election, Harry Reid proclaimed that the very first opportunity Democrats would do the remaining bit to abolish the Supreme Court filibuster, a, a, provision, a provision that had been left in place as it happens only in deference to uh, Planned Parenthood and NARAL, who were, who were concerned that if uh, that filibuster weren't there, a pro-life president with a uh, Republican Senate would, uh, would be able to get an anti-Roe candidate confirmed. So look, they have made uh, short-term political calculations all along. Uh, they have um, lost the bets they've made. That's the situation that explains the situation we're in, and it seems like they're they're ready to make another very short-term bad bet. Because let's have in mind that if somehow they were to increase the court to uh, 13 members, soon it'll be 17 and 19 and 23 and 39 and 117. Again, you're, you're, you're destroying any sense of what a court is uh, for um, nakedly uh, ideological reasons. You know, another, another uh, historical note, uh, while advocates of court packing today say we ought to expand the court because it's a 6-3 Republican majority, in March of 1937, when FDR's court packing plan was introduced, the, the ratio was 7-2. to two. There were seven Republican appointees, two Democrat, and one of the Democrat appointees were one of the so-called four horsemen who were voting to strike down FDR's New Deal legislation. So effectively, it was an eight to one court, uh, and Democrats still said judicial independence is more important than politically manipulating the court. I want to talk a little bit about um, even if, uh, you, know, you know, let's let's put aside the fact that, you know, all of these, all of these uh, problems with court packing, the dis destruction of judicial independence, and all that. But would it work? I mean, we a lot of times. Uh, what I'm when I hear this discussion about court packing today and read about it and so on, um, people talk about kind of the merits of it. But as a practical matter, um, can you get the decisions you want simply by appointing a few judges? Uh, you you've you clerked on the Supreme Court. You've studied it and followed it for a long, long time. I went, I went back. I mentioned the four horsemen, the four justices who most consistently voted against FDR's New Deal legislation included 
uh, a Republican appointee. The, the three musketeers, the three justices who most consistently supported, um, I'm sorry, a Democrat appointee, and the three musketeers who most consistently supported FDR's uh, New Deal legislation included a Republican appointee. Um, you know, since then, I mean, they, they say, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower said his two biggest mistakes were on the Supreme Court, Earl Warren and William Brennan. Uh, Roe versus Wade, a Republican uh, appointee, Justice Blackmun wrote the opinion. Republicans appointees, uh, Chief Justice Berger, Justice Brennan, Justice Stewart, Justice Powell, they were all in the majority. Uh, more recently, uh, the Obergefell decision uh, about gay marriage, written by Anthony Kennedy. It was a 5-4 decision. Uh, NFIB versus Sebelius upholding Obamacare, 5-4 decision. Chief Justice Roberts was in the majority. I mean, the idea that um, a president can choose robots, I guess, can choose appointees who they know will, you know, uh, vote a certain way and address certain issues in a certain way and predict the cases that are going to come before the court of the future so that they get what they want. Uh, I think that's absurd. What do you think? Well, I guess I'd add to your examples of Byron White, the, the Kennedy uh, appointee who um, was uh, one of the dissenters uh, in Roe and um, generally an opponent of substantive due process. That said, Tom, I'm, I'm more skeptical than you are. I think we've had um, the uh, parties very much sort around judicial ideology. I think there's this deep divide now. I think there's a real corruption of constitutional thinking on the left where um, constitutional theorizing is really nothing more than coming up with um, excuses to um, impose the political results that you want. So I think it'd be fairly easy if uh, Joe Biden had carte blanche for him to put on the bench folks who at least over the next you know, 10, 15 years would be very um, predictable, reliable votes for uh, liberal causes. Now, over the longer term, you know, who knows what the the the, the, the fights of uh, you know 20 years from now will be about. But uh, yeah, I, I I wouldn't want to take the gamble that uh, that 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 uh, they they wouldn't get what they wanted through this um, stratagem. It, the the title of our discussion today has two parts. One is a bad idea, and we've been talking about how, like 1937, the idea of expanding the, the court in order to appoint justices who will deliver the goods, so to speak, uh, is a terrible idea and would destroy the independence of the courts. But the second part of our discussion is it's a worse idea now, and that has to do with how, uh, what would it take to uh, institute court packing? What, what would it take to establish that in law? As we said, in 1937, Democrats had a huge majority. Uh, they could have passed it if, if they stuck together. They, they chose not to. Today, you have a 50-50 Senate. Um, let's say the House passes court packing legislation to add those four justices, and then that bill comes over. What would it take to get it passed in the Senate? Well, for starters, uh, assuming that Republicans uh, stood strong against the measure, as I think it's safe to say they would, uh, you would need to ha have the Democrats uh, abolish the legislative filibuster. A huge move that would then um, you know, pave the way for the left to uh, achieve all sorts of other dramatic transformational change via 50-50 Senate. Uh, so that would be, um, I think, revolutionary 
in terms of how the Senate operates. And uh, I, you know, I would hope that there would be Democratic senators like Joe Manchin, perhaps like uh, Kirsten Sinema, uh, who would stand against that. But it would be um, quite extraordinary and, again, pave the way for all sorts of other things. And I, I, I think even uh, when he was a senator, Joe Biden himself voted against eliminating uh, the legislative filibuster. That's been, and you worked in the Senate as I did, uh, th that's been the single most distinctive feature of the Senate as a legislative body for more than 200 years. So you'd have, uh, in an effort to get a f uh, decisions in a few cases, the left would want to change the entire Supreme Court. And in order to get a few bills passed, the left would want to change the entire Senate. I mean, we, we it would be two branches instead of one that would undergo this kind of revolution. Um, last year, uh, well, as I mentioned, uh, Joe Biden has a record on these things. He was in a, a senator for 36 years. Back in 1983, he called court packing a terrible, terrible mistake and a boneheaded idea. Uh, even during the presidential campaign, he said, if we pack the court, it's going to come back and eat us alive, he said. During the October 9, 2019 Democratic debate, he said, I would not get into court packing. We add three justices. Next time around, we lose control. They add three justices. We begin to lose any credibility the court has at all. Um, that's the point that you were just making a minute ago. Uh, and, but then last fall, October, he, he, you know, he's been pushed to, to endorse it. Uh, he gives this interview on, in, on 60 Minutes where he says, well, I'm going to instead create a commission that's going to look at court reform ideas. Now, in that interview, he said that that commission was not going to look at court packing. It looks like they are. But what, what, uh, what impact do you think this commission will have in terms of the debate uh, and perhaps the reality of either court packing or other court reform ideas? Well, I'm inclined to view a presidential commission as often um, a uh, pathway to the graveyard for an idea. And I think that may be what uh, Joe Biden intends. He's nominated or, or appointed some three dozen individuals to this commission, mostly left-leaning, but some, uh, some, some, some strong conservatives as well. I think it's gonna be very difficult for this group to reach consensus uh, on uh, any proposal, much less on, um, on, on court packing. So um, maybe I'm giving uh, President Biden too much credit, but I had thought that he was deftly uh, deflecting court packing um, back in the campaign by announcing th this commission. And uh, I see nothing in uh, the, the, his executive order that uh, makes me think otherwise. That said, you know, how strong will he be in standing up to the left? Um, you know, he, he hasn't been so far uh, on, on so many things. So, you know, we'll have to see. Um, if push comes to shove, is he, gonna, is he gonna, going to um, maintain the positions that he's spelled out and been elected on um, over the years? Do you think, um, you know, the, these left-wing groups that are pushing court packing, uh, and some even say court packing is more important than other possible reforms. They they have this narrative that and they use phrases like the court is broken or the courts are in crisis. Um, Biden in his 60 Minutes interview was um, a little bit more casual when he said the Supreme Court is out of whack. He didn't really explain what that meant, but um, 
you know, there, but it's this, this idea that um, there's this unbalanced court there. It's in crisis. It's, it's been hijacked. It's been stolen. This the idea, e even if the, this commission um, doesn't come out with, let's say a specific endorsement for a, a particular reform, could could it still contribute to this sort of narrative that there's you know because there's a commission and it's examining the court and there's these reform ideas and of course uh, if you're going to have reform that means something's got to be wrong that it could contribute to this overall sort of um, uh, narrative that the the courts are a problem that the courts need to be changed in some way which uh, I think you know would be a a, a real negative development because people are perceiving the courts as too political anyway. What do you think? Yeah, well, it's interesting that uh, both uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer have made clear their opposition to, to court packing. I think they have a much better understanding of how the court is working than a lot of these groups on the left. Uh, that said, there's some risk that these radical ideas could, could get normalized uh, simply by being talked about and become more palatable as a result. I am hopeful that um, when the commission uh, does issue its report, um, you know, with, that may well be way down the road, that um, the effect will be to uh, treat this concept as, a, as, as objectionable, as a non-starter. Uh, we'll see if it even addresses it, but if it does, I doubt that there'll be um, more than a handful of members um, who embrace it. There, back in the in 1937, when FDR's plan was uh, in the Congress, um, you know, it clearly was rejected in terms of an actual plan, a specific piece of legislation. Uh, some scholars, historians, they look back and then they see that uh, uh, perhaps it had some kind of an impact in terms of, um, you know, intimidating the court or, or pushing the court to maybe change how it did things, uh, sort of a shot across the bow, perhaps that, um, you know, if you don't move in that direction, you know, we might uh, try to change you in some way. Um, uh, 2000, I think it was 2019, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, along with several of his Democratic colleagues, uh, filed an amicus brief in a Supreme Court gun control case, uh, and, and that brief, I think I have it here, yeah, the last, the last words of the brief are, the Supreme Court is not well, and the people know it. Perhaps the court can heal itself before the public demands that it be restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics. Um, and a lot of people saw that as the, the same kind of message, like, get your act together, uh, you know, change your ways, or we're going to change you. Um, is, do you, are you concerned at all that the, the commission could contribute to, to that sort of dynamic where, um, again, even if it doesn't endorse specific ideas, you know, the politicians or the president is using this commission to sort of send this message and, and that it could have some kind of subtle impact? Yes, and you know, back in 1937, it was uh, Justice Owen Roberts who was said to have um, done the so-called switch in time that saved nine. Now, I think historians looking at court papers um, have more recently dismissed that theory. They've said that he um, had his 
position, I believe in the case of West Coast Hotel versus Parish, established before um, FDR started talking about this. But now it's clear that another uh, Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, is the, the target of uh, intimidation efforts by the left. And he unfortunately has given them reason to think, uh, it's not crystal clear, but reason to think that their efforts at intimidation are working. So whether it's this commission or the uh, campaign for court packing generally, or the sort of uh, amicus briefs with over the top language by the likes of Sheldon Whitehouse, I think you are gonna see um, this continuing effort by the left to, to intimidate the court into not doing its duty, uh, to, to um, try to persuade uh, the Chief Justice and others that um, judicial statesmanship would, some, would somehow consist of bowing to this political pressure. And I think it would be a um, grave folly if the justices were to give into that. And, and people may remember uh, Senator Schumer, who's now the majority leader of the Senate, stood on the steps of the Supreme Court when they were hearing arguments in an abortion case. Uh, he spoke by name. He said, you know, Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, you know, you will reap the whirlwind or whatever that means, kind of. You won't know what hit you. Yeah, you won't know what hit you. I mean, it was a yeah, direct threat. I mean, uh, the, those, those, it seems to me, are in the same category of, as court packing. Uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, that that comment, which received certainly some criticism at the time, uh, I think should have been um, universally condemned. Uh, and yet, yet this is now our Senate Majority Leader. And, uh, you know, just a, one, one last question. Um, back in 1937, the biggest opponent of the court packing scheme was the American Bar Association. They, they did nationwide surveys and presented all kinds of research to the Senate Judiciary Committee and, and uh, practically had a whole day of hearing by itself to present the case. Uh, as far as I can tell, uh, they're silent on that today. Why do you think that is? Well, silence is better than uh, support for the proposal. I, my guess is that there's uh, an internal divide and that the um, path of least resistance is to say we, that we don't need to deal with this right now, which you know, may, 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 ha may have some uh, merit to it. Look, right now, um, you know, while, the, while the proposal has gotten a lot of attention, uh, the leader in, the lead sponsor in the Senate is, is Ed Markey. I mean, that doesn't really seem uh, like a, a great lead sponsor for something you intend to get through. Uh, in the House, um, I believe that Nancy Pelosi has already indicated that she's not really interested in moving this. Now that might change. I don't mean to be complacent about this, but um, it's it's not clear at this point that the proposal is going to go anywhere. One of the things that uh, contributed to the failure of court packing in 1937, the American people were about evenly split at the beginning but trended increasingly negative as it got debated and discussed. Uh, the several polls I've seen over the last uh, six months or so show uh, 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 that may, uh, by almost two to one, the American people uh, are against this idea. I, it's probably true they don't understand all of the ins and outs of it unless they see this podcast or listen to this podcast. But uh, is that an encouraging sign that uh, the American people at least have a sense that you know you ought to keep your hands off the Supreme Court, let it do its job. 
Oh, it is. And I think the uh, evasive and dishonest um, reasons that uh, Eric Holder and Gerald Nadler have given for this proposal show that they know they can't win a, um, a, a candid debate uh, over court packing. Like, I'd love to have Senate Democrats go into the 2022 election making this their centerpiece. Uh, Joe Biden uh, is president uh, in, in part because he had the sense not to do that uh, last year. And the Democrats control the Senate in part because um, he had the sense um, not, not to do so. Well, I think you'd, you'd agree the idea of judicial independence, which actually is one of the uh, one of the items listed in the Declaration of Independence as to why we are a separate country uh, is critical. Justice Scalia spoke of that often, uh, and that's at the heart of this debate. It's not whether you're pro-abortion or anti-gun or something like that. It's whether you believe that the judiciary should be independent and impartial. Hopefully that principle uh, will, will win out. And uh, the, the more uh, I think just like in 37, the more this can be debated and discussed and the basics of it uh, can be uh, brought to the American people. I think people, whether they've been to law school or not, frankly, on some of these things, if you go to law school, that's where your mind gets messed up about some of this. But just common sense and a basic uh, sense of, of what ju how judges ought to be impartial and independent, I think most people have that. Just in their common sense, and I think they'll they'll understand that this is a bad idea. Uh, Ed, I want to thank you for joining the discussion. Um, we'll be uh, making uh, various resources, things that you and I have written and others uh, available to people uh, as a follow-up. And I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Hopefully, this is a useful discussion and it'll help people understand the debate and participate in it better. Thanks a lot, Ed. Thank you, Tom. Enjoyed it.